Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be here with you today as it is once again my privilege to share the Word of God with you. And it is my prayer that the Lord would minister to each and every one of us through the power of His everlasting Word. And as we are in the month of December, and we are approaching the end of another year, it is time then for our Christmas message. And let us see if I can turn the slides. Yes, our Christmas message this morning, our title will be The Christ of Christmas. The Christ of of Christmas. Now, as we begin, I know that the idea of churches celebrating Christmas might be repulsive to even some Christians. First, because the word Christmas was an invention of the Roman Catholic Church related to Christ's Mass or the Mass of Christ, in which each and every time that a Mass is celebrated, Christ is sacrificed over and over and over again. Second, the birth of Christ most certainly was not on December 25th. And lastly, in the early centuries of the Church, Christmas celebrations were actually associated with a pagan festival, with indecent activities. And so someone might ask, why then should we recognize and honor such a holiday with such dubious distinctions? Well, as Lee Strobel points out, did you know that the swastika was used for thousands of years as a symbol of good fortune. And that was the reason why, when the Nazi party came to power, they purposefully chose the swastika as a message to Germany that the country's good fortunes would soon return. Today, even though I know the original intent of the symbol, I wouldn't dare put a swastika outside my house or paint one on my car and say, I was just using it with the original meaning of good fortune. You wouldn't be a good fortune for me. No, thank you. The modern meaning has overshadowed the original intent. Another illustration is the fact that God established the rainbow as a symbol, as a sign of his covenant with Noah that has benefited mankind for thousands of years. Unfortunately today, the rainbow has been widely accepted as a symbol of the homosexual movement. A modern meaning has overshadowed the original intent. And so at Christmas, it is only fair that we as Christians have turned the tables. We have redeemed Christmas from its pagan origins to a biblical alternative for the glory of God. We have given a Christian modern meaning overshadowing 
the original intent. At Christmas, now, we want the world to know that we want to celebrate Christmas, and yes, we do celebrate it, not with its original meanings, but we do celebrate Christmas in honor of the Christ of Christmas. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word to our hearts. We praise you for the meaning of Christmas in its essence as we celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that your word would minister to us, to each and every one of us, and that we would heed the opportunities to preach the gospel, to share the gospel in the true meaning of Christmas in your eyes to mankind. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have often mentioned to you that one of the theological realities that amazes me the most is the doctrine of the Incarnation. I'm always amazed at the thought that the Almighty God, the creator of the entire universe, He became a man and He walked among us. The Creator mingled with his creation. It is a fantastic thought. It is a fantastic reality. But notice that contrary to what false religions say, Jesus is not a created being. But Jesus has always existed in eternity past with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in John chapter 8, verse 57 and 58, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus used in his response to them the same name as God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God said, I am who I am. Meaning that Jesus was saying, as God, I am, I have always existed. Jesus does not have an end, and he does not have a beginning either. He is not a created being. Different than us, all of us human beings, we are immortals. We all have a date of birth. We all have a date of beginning. We will not have an end. We will live forever. Whether you're a Christian or not, you will live forever. The big difference is, some people will live forever in the presence of God for eternity. Other people will live forever separated from the presence of God for eternity. But all of us will live forever because we are immortals. We don't have an end, but we all have a date of birth. We all have a beginning. God is the only being who is eternal. That is, he doesn't have an end, and he doesn't have a beginning either. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. The aseity of God is difficult for us to understand. But the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have always existed. They do not have an end. They do not have a beginning. Now, it is true that when God the Father when he devised the plan of salvation in eternity past, 
the Son, Jesus Christ, he did accept the Father's plan for him to enter into time as a human being, for him to be born on earth as part of the plan of salvation. But the Lord has always existed. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Lord is the second person of the Trinity. He has always existed. He entered into time as we celebrate Christmas based on that fact. That he became a human being, but the Lord is not a created being. He is God. He has always existed. I invite you this morning to follow Christ with me. From eternity past, culminating with his entry into the world at Christmas time. We'll see if the slides will continue to, to work and show. Ah, there you are. First, let us begin with the Christ of Christmas from eternity past. Christ in eternity past. As I mentioned, he has always existed. And the Bible tells us I'm sure the Bible tells us in John chapter 17 verse 5 the Bible says, Now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. With the glory that I had with you before the world was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 8 and also in James chapter 2 verse 1. The Bible says that Jesus is the Lord of glory. He always existed in eternity past in glory. The question is what is the glory of God? It is impossible for us as humans here on earth to appropriately describe what the glory of God is. Because as the Bible tells us, there is no one who has seen the glory of God and remain alive so that he or she is able to describe what the glory of God is. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 33, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. But God said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. No one can describe appropriately the glory of God because no one has seen it and remain alive. Of course, the Apostle John says in John chapter 12, verse 41, that the prophet Isaiah, he saw the glory of God. But of course, when we look into the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, where that experience is described, we soon understand that Isaiah was giving a vision of the manifestation of the glory of God. A vision giving him a limited experience as to what the glory of God is. If he had seen 
the full expression, had experienced the full expression of the glory of God, he could not have remained alive. Even the Apostle John himself, in Revelation in chapter 4, the Bible tells us that he was taken in spirit to the very throne room of God in a vision. And as you read Revelation chapter 4, we see how he tries to describe the vision he was seeing of the glory of God. But once again, it was a limited expression of the glory of God. On this side of eternity, what we can best say is that the glory of God is the perfection of his presence. The glory of God is the holiness of his presence. Only those who have already passed away from this life and they are in heaven, only they can see and experience the glory of God in its fullness. But before man was created, even before the angels were created, only Christ existed in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We can say that in eternity past, Christ is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 6 that the glory of God is in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that in Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Notice that it doesn't say that Christ is the reflection of the glory of God. It doesn't bounce off of, off of him glory that belongs to someone else. But he is the radiance of the glory of God because he is the glory of God. It emanates from him. Not only Christ is the glory of God from eternity past, but he is also the word of God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that in him reside all the treasures and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He possesses all wisdom and knowledge. He is the word of God. And even from eternity past, he manifested the power of his word. And he continues to manifest the power of his word when he made creation. When he brought creation to existence. We know that the Lord manifested the creative power of himself as the word of God. Even before he, create, he created the earth. Even before he created all of us, even before God created mankind, Christ had manifested himself in his creative power as the word of God. The Bible tells us in Job in chapter 38, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Did you notice this in what God is asking Job? He is saying that the morning stars sang and the, all the sons of God sang as he was laying the foundation of the earth. Who are the morning stars? Who are the sons of God? They are the angels, the angelic creatures, the angelic beings, the spirits God created for the glory of his name. And so if when God was founding the earth, if when God was creating the earth in Genesis 1.1, the Bible is telling us here that even before God created man, even before God created the earth, he had already created the angels. The Lord Jesus had already manifested the creative power of himself as the word of God because the angels were already there as he was creating the earth. As he was creating the earth, the angels were singing, singing and the angels were shouting for joy for the glory of God. 
Even in eternity past, Jesus has always been. He is the glory of God, and he is the word of God. And as he is beginning the work of creation in the beginning, we must recognize and see that Christ, he continues to manifest himself as the glory of God and as the word of God. As we have just mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we see the Lord as the word of God in the work of creation. As the Bible, as the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth through the power of his word. The Bible says in Psalm 33 verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And who is the word of the Lord? Who is the word of God? It's Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, meaning Christ, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, apart from Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. His name is the word of God. Revelation 19, 19 verse 13 says his name is called the word of God. Forevermore, Christ is the word. All the knowledge, all the treasures, all the riches, all the wealth of the knowledge and omniscience of God reside in Christ Jesus our Lord. And not only the Lord, as the word of God, he has created all things, but the Lord also sustains all things. The Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Some false philosophies say that God created all things, but then he abandoned his creation. He remains aloof to the affairs of man. He simply created, put the earth in, into motion, and he abandoned his creation. That is not what the Bible says. That's, that is not what God says in his word. The Bible tells us that Christ, as the word of God, he created the world and he upholds all things in his hands through his power as the word of God. The Bible says in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by him, by Christ, all things were created as he is the word of God, both in the heavens and on earth, visible in the natural world and invisible in the supernatural world, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of all things and he is the sustainer of all things as the word of God. And not only he created all things and he continues to sustain all things through his word also. As the word of God, he will issue the decree for this current creation to come to an end. He who began this work on earth of creation, he will be the same one who will bring the current creation to an end. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 7, By the word of God, and who is the word of God? Christ Jesus our Lord, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But by his word, by the word of God, by Christ, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. 
As the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Christ says that he is the beginning and the end. He is the beginning because he brought all things that existed through the power of his word. And he continues to sustain it. For the day will come when this current creation will come to an end. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. According to the word of the Lord. And I want you to notice this. The Bible also tells us in Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expense is declaring the work of his hands. The work of creation is a manifestation of Christ as the glory of God. Christ in eternity past, he is the glory of God and he is the word of God. Christ in the beginning, he is the word of God bringing creation into existence. And he is the glory of God manifested in creation. He is the word of God. He is the glory of God. We also see Christ in the Old Testament. We can follow him according to what the word of God reveals to us since eternity past, in the beginning of all things, and even in the Old Testament. Even before Christ manifested himself on earth when he was born in Bethlehem, we know through what theologically it is called Christophanies, the Lord has manifested himself on earth even before his incarnation. What we see in the Old Testament are pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime in the Old Testament you see a reference of the angel of the Lord with a definite article, the angel of the Lord. And anytime that the angel of the Lord he identifies himself as God, as Lord, and he accepts worship. Those are the indications that that is Christ in his pre-incarnate form, being manifested even before his human birth in Bethlehem. But the angel of the Lord in, the, in those characteristics revealed to us the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now theologians and Bible scholars may debate and may argue saying that it was not truly the angel of the Lord. It was not truly Christ pre-incarnate, but it was simply a theophany, not a Christophany. It was an appearance of God. But quite frankly, it is just an argument about semantics because as we know that Jesus Christ is God, and we know that the angel of the Lord is, an, is a visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament, considering that Christ is God, then therefore those visible appearances of God is a manifestation of Christ even before his incarnation. I want you to notice the difference between these two passages about the angel. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel, who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. The angel did not accept worship from John the Apostle. The, angel, the angels, they do not receive worship. But they declare that all worship belongs to God, to Almighty God, the creator of all things, the creator of the angels. He did not accept worship, but instead he said, I am simply a fellow servant of yours. 
I serve him, I worship him with you, John. Now notice what the Bible says in Exodus in chapter 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And the angel of the Lord said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The angel of the Lord he identified himself as God. And not only that, as we continue to read in this passage, he told Moses to remove the sandals off his feet because the place where he was standing, it was holy ground. It was a place of worship. He was telling Moses that there was a place of worship that Moses would be worshiping him. He identified himself as God, as the Lord, and he demanded worship. This is a manifestation of Christ before his incarnation as God. Notice one thing. That all the appearances of the angel of the Lord have ceased after the birth of Christ. In the New Testament, we see the mentions of angels numerous times, but not the angel of the Lord after Christ was born. Someone may say, what about Matthew 1.24, where the Bible says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Well, we need to qualify that translation because four verses before in Matthew 1.20, Matthew simply says, an angel of the Lord, not the angel an angel of the Lord. He meant that it was an angel coming from the Lord, an angelic being. And you may say, how about Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, where the Bible says that the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb. Well, if you look in your Bible right now, in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 2, it will not say the angel of the Lord. Because there's no definite article in the original manuscript. The best translation is, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. Why? Because the angel of the Lord ceased to exist and ceased to manifest himself after Christ was born. Because the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, they were pre-incarnate appearances of Christ himself. Christ is the glory of God. And Christ is the Word of God from eternity past, in the beginning, and even in the Old Testament. He is the glory of God in His glorious appearance such as this in blazing fire. And He is the Word of God bringing God's specific messages to His servants, to those who receive the privilege of seeing and being able to interact with Christ, with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But then the time came for him to manifest himself in human form. The time came for us to now see Christ in the New Testament. The Christ of Christmas. The Bible tells us in Galatians in chapter 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, 
God sent forth his son. When the fullness of the time came, that means when the perfect time came around. Jesus was born when there were perfect conditions for his birth to occur. Perfect religious, economic, and cultural conditions were in place when Jesus was born. But that perfect time for his birth had already been decided, had already been predetermined in eternity past. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, when Christ would come into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. The Son speaking to the Father. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. From eternity past, that perfect time when he was going to be born, a baby in a manger, a baby in Bethlehem, Christ said, the time had already been determined when he would be given a body and enter into time. He was going to be conceived in the womb of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 34 and 35, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. The virginal birth of Christ is one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And yet there are many who call themselves Christians who say they do not believe it. There are many who call themselves Christians and say that they do not believe in the book of Genesis. Specifically, they don't believe in the first three chapters of Genesis and the biblical account of creation. There are others who call themselves Christians, but they say they don't believe in the book of Revelation because it is too far-fetched and it is not really talking about things that will happen in the future. But Revelation is just an allegorical book speaking of things that have already happened in the past, particularly in, in AD 70 about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, they, and there are people who call themselves Christians saying that they do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. So let me get this straight. You call yourself a Christian, but you don't believe in the beginning of the Bible. You don't believe in the end of the Bible. And you don't believe in the middle of the Bible. So it might just be that you are not a Christian at all. God has given us by his grace the faith and understanding that Christ was born in the womb of Mary according to the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. If Christ had been born according to natural means... He would have been born a sinner, is still having received the transmission of sin from Adam and Eve that every human being receives. And he sacrificed on the cross, even if he had gone through with it as a sinner, dying at the cross, he would have been insufficient and ineffective for our salvation. Because he would have been just a sinner who would not be an acceptable sacrifice before the Father for the forgiveness and for our redemption, for our freedom from the penalty of our sins. But we know, according to what the Holy Spirit has pressed upon our hearts, and as we see and read in the Word of God, that Christ was conceived in the womb of the virgin, in the womb of a virgin, according to the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to be born sinless, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word, the Word of God, 
who is Christ Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice that even during his incarnation, Jesus remained the Word of God and the glory of God. Of course, when the Apostle John says that he saw the glory of God, he is referring to his experience along with his brother James and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, when the Bible tells us that Christ's face shone like the sun and his garments became brilliant as the light. But there was simply a veiled manifestation of the glory of God. Because again, as we read in Exodus in chapter 33, no one could see the full expression of God's glory and remain alive. But John is speaking of that experience that confirms that even in his incarnation, Christ is the word of God and he is the glory of God. For us, for all of us, in general, as a man, the Lord's glory was veiled. No one could see the glorious appearance of Christ Jesus. He became a man. He abandoned the riches of his heavenly glories to live as a man on earth. But he never stopped being God. He abandoned his glories in his appearance. In his appearance, he was a human being, but he never took advantage of the full privileges of his divinity, of his deity in glory here on earth. The Bible tells us in Isaiah in chapter 53 in verse 2 that nothing in the appearance of Christ would make us to desire him, would make us to be attracted to him. Forget about the portraits about Jesus with long, wavy, blonde hair and brilliant blue eyes. As Isaiah says, there was nothing in his appearance that would make us to be attracted to him. In his humanity, Jesus was a regular Middle Eastern man with brown skin. In his appearance, there was nothing for us to see the glorious nature of Christ as God. But he never stopped being God. The Bible says in Philippians in chapter 2 verse 6, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He simply voluntarily relinquished all the privileges of his glory, but he never stopped being God. In his answer to Philip, he says this in John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus is the only being with a theantropic nature. He is fully God, and he is fully man. He is fully God, and he is fully man. And someone may say, but doesn't the Bible say that he emptied himself of his deity? Doesn't the Bible say that he emptied himself of his divinity? 
The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. No, he didn't empty himself of his deity. On the contrary, the Bible says that even though he was fully human, fully man, although he was truly a human being, he was also fully God. The fullness of God, the fullness of deity continued to dwell in Christ Jesus. And someone may say, are you sure, preacher? Because I'm sure I, I read something that says that he emptied himself of his deity. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What it says there that the Lord emptied himself, it simply means what I have already mentioned, that he laid aside the privileges of his glory, but he never stopped being God. And we must also remember that this passage in Philippians in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, is one of the more foundational Christological statements in the entire Bible. But the context in which Paul receives these words and speaks those words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, his context is about humility. He's talking about the fact that although Christ remained God, he humbled himself to be born on earth as a man. But he never stopped being God. In John chapter 1 verse 14 again, when the Bible says, And the Word became flesh, that tells us obviously that even though the Lord set aside the manifestation of his glory, even though the Lord set aside the manifestation of his glorious appearance, he remained the Word of God. The Word of God becoming flesh is the main message of Christmas. This is the true meaning of Christmas, that the Word of God became flesh. That God had the greatest message ever that the world would ever receive. But God chose not to use another Old Testament prophet. God chose not to simply give an angelic announcement, not simply to perform a miraculous sign, but God chose to get his words in human form so that he would be introducing his words and his message himself. The word of God took human form. If you speak, you can write your words. If you speak, you can record your words. If you speak, you can have a CD, a DVD, a Bluetooth, or every recording method or media you may choose. But when you speak, you cannot make your words to take human form. God, in his infinite power, he made his message, his words, to become flesh. And the word of God, who is Christ Jesus himself, was born in through the virgin by the Holy Spirit of God so that the message that God wanted to share with the entire world would be proclaimed. Christ, the Word of God, became flesh. Why was necessary for the Lord to do so? Because of what the Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ had to be born perfect and sinless to be an acceptable sacrifice before the Father for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins. He was the one who made the perfect propitiation. He was the one who made the acceptable sacrifice for our sins to be forgiven. Christ had to be made in human flesh to be the perfect sacrifice for us. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus was born as our Savior. He was born and he lived on this earth for 33 years up until the point when he was crucified, when he was nailed to the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And on the third day after he was sacrificed, the Lord rose from the dead. The work would not have been completed. We cannot say that the work of salvation was successful and effective in the eyes of God if Christ had simply been born here on earth without dying for us at the cross and without having the Father's affirmation that he accepted his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. Christmas, as some, has, as some have said, Christmas is only the promise. Easter is the proof. Jesus was born for us. And he lived for our salvation. And he remained sinless and perfect until he was killed and crucified for us at Calvary's cross as the perfect sacrifice. And on the third day, he rose victorious for the glory of his name, for the glory of God, and for the completion of the work of our salvation. As it says in John 19.30, it is finished. It is all paid for. Tetelestai, it is all paid for. The debt of our sin has been paid. We could never simply stop at the birth of Christ, even at the crucifixion of Christ, without knowing and making mention as to where he is today. The Bible tells us in John chapter 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father, Jesus says, and have come into the world. But I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 through 11 that that has taken place 2,000 years ago. That as the disciples were looking at the Lord, he was taken up to his place of glory in heaven where he is forevermore. It is impossible for us to conclude without being able to see Christ in glory again. Christ died for us, but he rose again, and he is in glory. And do you know that until the moment when Christ returned to take us home, Christ is interceding for your life? As the perfect priest who had paid the price for all of our sins, the Lord is interceding for you by name. He, as we speak, he is speaking your name before the Father, interceding for you. And he knows all that is happening in my life, all that is happening in your life. He knows all of our failures. He knows all of our shortcomings. He knows all of our 
times of temptation and our times of trial, but we know that we are not alone because there is one, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, who is interceding for us and speaking of your name one by one to the Father, our God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he, Christ, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We know that the Lord is coming. We know that we are living in the end times. But we know before we see him face to face, you can rest in the consolation you can rest in the comfort that the Lord who was born, lived, died, and rose again for your salvation. He is the one speaking your name before the Father. He is interceding for you right now. And that is a very important thing to know. Because there is another one who is speaking your name to the Father as well. He is your prosecutor. And he is accusing you day and night. He also knows your failures. He also, know, he also knows your shortcomings. He is the accuser. He is Satan. As the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he is accusing us before the Father day and night. But it isn't that wonderful to know that on our side, to the right of the Father, we have a defense attorney. We have one who is pleading our cause and he's guaranteeing our acquittal. He is saying, Father, I have already paid the price for him. I have already paid the price for her. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sin. We have nothing to fear. This is not antinomianism. This is not a license for us to abuse grace. This is not a license for us to sin. But as John says, I write this thing so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we do know that Christ is our salvation. He is the forgiveness of our sins through the sacrifice that he completed at Calvary's cross. Christ, he, he remains the word of God and he remains the glory of God, especially now, as he is in glory interceding for us. And you want to know something even more wonderful? The Bible says in John chapter 17, in, in the Lord's priestly prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. What will you do when you see the word of God and when you see the glory of God? It is his promise that it will soon be fulfilled that we will see him as he is. What would you think would be the first words that Christ will say to you when he sees you in heaven? What do you think will be the first words that you will say to Christ when you see your Lord in heaven? As the song says, 
I can only imagine. What a glory it will be that moment when we bow before the Lord and we are perfect in his presence, completely absent from the presence of sin, and we are made perfect in the presence of God. Oh, what a glorious hope we have in him. And not only will we will see him and we will see his glory, but the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him, not that we will be made gods, but that we will be made perfect in sinlessness. The Lord has justified us. He has taken away the penalty of our sin. The Lord is sanctifying us, taking away the power of our sin. And the Lord will glorify us, taking away the presence of sin. We will forever be in his presence, glorifying the Lord forevermore, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. What a glorious manifestation is what the Lord has done for us from eternity past to eternity future with the glorious moment of Christmas when he was born to initiate the plan of salvation that has been completed through his death and through his resurrection from the dead. What a glorious moment it is for us to be once again reminded of the true meaning of Christmas, to know and to honor and to praise the Christ of Christmas. Before we conclude today, I want to introduce you to this woman. Perhaps you recognize her. Her name is Anissa Ayala. In 1988, when she was 16 years of age, she was diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia. After she received chemotherapy and radiation treatments, the doctor said, that she needed a bone marrow transplant, without which she would die. Neither her parents nor her brother were a match, and they were even more disappointed when they tried to find a comparable donor and they could not find anyone. And so in the midst of that distress, her parents had this incredible idea. They were in their advanced 40s, both the father and the mother, they were in their 40s, but they had this idea. What if we conceive a baby, hoping that the baby would be compatible to Anissa? What if we have a baby with the single purpose of being the donor for our daughter? And so it was. They had another child, and they named that child Marisa. And to everyone's delight, Marisa was a comparable donor. And when she was 14 months old, the doctors took some of her marrow and gave it to her sister Anissa. The procedure was a complete success, and Anissa fully recovered from leukemia. And many years later, 
Both Anissa and Marisa are leading healthy lives. Their parents, whose real names are Abraham and Mary, they became a new sensation because of their love for their daughter Anissa and for their willingness to sacrifice their daughter Marisa for the benefit of her sister. Their life experience was so compelling that it became the cover story on Time magazine and even turned into a Hollywood movie. The story of the baby who was born to save a life. Their story reminded me of another baby, of one baby who was born to save not just one life, but the life of many. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whether you are here in this worship center, whether you are watching this service, whether you are listening to this message, it is my prayer that in this season of Christmas, that the Holy Spirit of God will minister to your heart, that you recognize that in your sin, you can never live forever in the presence of God, that there is nothing that you can do to erase sin from your life. There is nothing that your good works or how many times you go to a church or how many works of charity you perform. There is nothing that you can do in your own to achieve the forgiveness of your sins. But God so loved the world that he already provided the perfect sacrifice for your forgiveness, for the sins in your life to be completely cleansed. It is a matter of repentance. And it is a matter of acceptance. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today. And your soul will be saved today and forevermore. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so wonderful to know that you loved us to such an extent that Christ died for us when all of us were still sinners. But so is your love, God, that one day you would reveal to us by your grace and mercy your plan of salvation so that we would be able to understand the reasons why Christ came to be born on this earth, to become our Savior, our Lord, the one who forgives our sins, not only today, not only at that moment, but forevermore. We thank you, Father, for the true meaning of Christmas for the true message of Christmas revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now, we pray, as we continue to give you all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.